Oh, I never get tired of those videos. There cannot be enough of those produced for me to, to encourage me. Well, my name is Brad, and I work here. And so some of you have been here in a few weeks. And yes, I got a haircut, um, lots of hairs cut. And so apparently my hair looked terrible before. I don't know what that was. I came home, and my wife said, did you get a faux hawk? And I said, I did. And, and humbly, I would add this. I've never looked more beautiful in all my life. And so I just would... Share that as well. Well, uh, let me invite you to take your Bibles and mark three places this morning. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to get right in there. And so let me invite you to mark uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Revelation chapter 20, and then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, which will be our primary passage today. And so uh, here's what I'm going to do. So in this super summer, this is our ninth summer in a row doing super summer. And usually we have two guest speakers, then I preach, and then two guest speakers, and then that's the whole of super summer. And in the messages that I have preached, I've done two things in those messages. One, I've taught a standalone, just something that's on my heart. Uh, last year I taught out of Proverbs about the fact that wise parents can raise foolish kids and the false guilt we feel from that. But then other times I've used that message in the middle to reteach something that we taught you know, maybe a while ago, not because uh, I don't uh, have anything else to study or to teach. It's because it's just we learn by repetition. So if it's something that is really important to keep in front of us, uh, I've used this time as well. So that's what I'm going to do today. And here's what I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to try and teach a series that we taught six years ago on judging, and so that's the the video there, Uh, and and I'm going to try and take all we taught in a five-week series on judging, and I'm going to try and condense that down into one 35-minute message, so fasten your seatbelts, all right? And so here's why we do that. One, uh, we learn by repetition. Uh, Two, the church is uh, quite a bit larger than it was six years ago, so there's a chance many of you may have not been with us when we talked through that important series. So if you were not attending Liberty Heights six years ago, would you just raise your hand? You say, hey, I'm, I'm," yeah, so lots and lots of people. So, and then three, this may be Uh, The most misunderstood, misapplied verse, truth, principle in all the Bible in a you-can't-judge-me culture that we live in. And so we're going to look at that uh, this morning. And so uh, there's a lot of questions as it relates to judgment. Um, Can we ever judge anyone? Uh, Does God judge everyone? And so we're going to look at that this morning. And here's what I want to do this morning. Um, I I just kind of grouped our time today and our thoughts under two uh, basic headings. So one, what does the Bible teach regarding vertical judgment? So what does God do as righteous judge? And then secondly, we're going to look at um, what, does, uh, what does the Bible teach regarding horizontal judgment? Like we're, we're judging other people. Other people are judging us. Is that always wrong? Is it sometimes wrong? Is it never wrong? And so we're going to start and just ask, what does the Bible teach regarding vertical judgment, what God does to us? And secondly, what does the Bible teach regarding horizontal judgments? That's where we're going to organize our time and thoughts today. And so when it comes to uh, the Bible teaching regarding vertical judgment, I want you to understand two things this morning. Uh, number one, uh, believers will participate in the judgment seat of Christ. And so uh, let's look at this morning at uh, the first passage I told you to mark or turn to, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, or verses uh, 10 through 15, rather, this morning. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm in the wrong place, I'm in chapter 10. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 down through verse 15 says this, according uh, to the grace of God, 
which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. It's very important to to underline that. Yet so is through fire. Do you not know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And so uh, this passage of Scripture is what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. And so uh, what is exactly the judgment seat of Christ? We talk about God's vertical judgment. So the judgment seat of Christ is a time of evaluation for believers only. Now, when I've taught about this or talked about this other people, this idea that we'll stand before Christ and there'll be a time of judgment, uh, my experience has been most people have been taught poorly about that. And here's why I know that. It's because they're dreading that. I had one person describe me. I said, I just assumed that what that was is that one day I would stand before Christ, even though I'm a believer, and all the scenes of my life, all the things I've done wrong would kind of flash on a screen, and all that would be evaluated. Can I just tell you something? That would not be heaven. That would be hell, right? That every wrong thing you've ever done is playing on the screens behind you, and Jesus just sitting there going, really? Did you say that? Did you do that? Right, a, a big eternal reminder that you and I have participated in every bad decision we've ever made. Do you realize that? That you and I have been willing participants in every bad decision that we've made. And so some people have been taught or picked it up somehow that the judgment seat of Christ here in 1 Corinthians 3 is that time. And so they're naturally, understandably fearful as a result of that. And so let me help you understand a little bit of terminology here that I think will help you reframe not only this, but the rest of what we'll teach today. We need to know the difference between judgment and condemnation. There is a difference between judgment or discernment or evaluation and condemnation. And so what's going on here at the judgment seat of Christ is a time of evaluation, not a time of condemnation. Now listen, for believers in Jesus Christ, one of the verses you should memorize and know is Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says this, Now therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the condemnation of God's wrath was put onto Christ at the cross, and you will never be condemned on this side of eternity or on the other side. So this is not a time of condemnation. It's time of evaluation. One writer said this, he said, a common misconception which arises from the English translation of the word judgment is that God will measure out a just retribution for sins in a believer's life and some measure of retributive punishment for sins will result. And so the reality is that this is not a time of condemnation. This is not a time where everything you've done wrong, for those who are in crisis, played on the screens behind you. This is a time of evaluation. It's a time where God says, hey, I gave you a little bit of time and a little bit of talent and a little bit of treasure. And I just want to evaluate how, uh, whether or not you've been a faithful steward over that. And based on your stewardship of those things I entrusted you with, I'm going to uh, distribute eternal rewards. 
And so if that helps you reframe what this is, this is the doctrine of eternal rewards. Now, this is not the only place this is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, listen to other passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 say this. Uh, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body, whether it's good or worthless. Uh, Romans 14 says this, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, if you've been on Bible teaching, you may know there's a different term for the judgment seat of Christ. It's also uh, called the Bema seat. And Bema is the word in the Greek. It was taken from the Olympic Games where contestants would compete for a prize under the careful scrutiny of judges who make sure that every rule of the contest was obeyed. And the victor of that event, based on the, the rules and the judging, would ascend to a platform called the Bema where he would be rewarded for his efforts. And so that's the idea that's here. Now, here's a good thing. If you're listening, say Amen. At the Bema seat in the, the games, they rewarded the winners. They did not whip the losers. And the same is true at the judgment seat of Christ. They'll reward us for the things we've done that have eternal value, gold, silver, precious stones, and we'll forfeit those things which we've done that had no eternal value, wood, hay, and stubble. But the reality is this is a time of eternal uh, rewards. And so, uh, this is not the only place eternal rewards are mentioned in the Bible. Listen to these other passages. 2 John chapter 8, look to yourselves that you lose not the thing that you have worked for, but that you will receive a full reward. Uh, Colossians 2.18, don't let anybody deceive you and take away your reward. Uh, Revelation 22.12, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Now, here's the reality. Is every single believer going to be at the judgment seat of Christ or the Bema seat? Yes. And so what that means is this. That means that every single believer will receive some measure of reward. Now, I've had taught this before and people said, yeah, but... What about someone gets more and someone doesn't have as much and all those kind of things? I don't have time to go into that. Let me just say a couple things. One, whatever rewards we get in Scripture identifies them in other places, we will cast down at the feet of Christ in worship. All right, so these are not trophies for your case. They're trophies for his. And here's the other reality, that in glory, when my sin nature has been removed, when someone else gets a fuller measure of reward for the stewardship of their life, here's what's different than on this side of eternity. I'm actually happy for them. I'm actually not jealous. I'm not bitter that I didn't get more reward. Why is your trophy bigger? More tro All those things that we struggle with on this side. I'm actually rejoicing, cheering them on with a pure heart at the level of reward they have received. And so the Bible teaches regarding vertical judgment that there will be a time where believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But secondly, the Bible teaches regarding vertical judgment that unbelievers will participate in the great white throne judgment. And so what is the great white throne judgment? It is a time for the unsaved to be judged. Now, I'm going to get a little technical here, so I'm going to invite you to stay with me and put on your thinking caps. Uh, when you're thinking about this idea of the great white throne judgment, in Revelation chapter 20, I want you to look with me at verses 11 through 15. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15 says this, Then I saw a great 
white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, plural, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. And so he describes two books, and he says one of them is the book of life, right? The Lamb's book of life, everyone has ever been saved, their name is recorded there. And the second book he's describing here that we often don't teach or talk about as much is a book of works, a record of works is what he's describing here. So let's keep reading. The dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the books, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works, twice in two verses. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. That's the future state of hell. And so when people ask me, are people in the lake of fire right now? That's a future state called hell is what he's describing there. And then verse 15, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Again, that that is hell. And so so who is standing before God in judgment? Well, if you uh, understand the timeline of end events, even when there's some disagreement on some of the timing there, that at this point in time, the church has been removed out, even though there's lots of disagreement about when that happens. And so all that's left is the unsaved to be judged at this point in time. And so this is a judgment of the unsaved standing before God. And so the question becomes this, what will be the basis of God's judgment? What will be the basis of the trial for these people standing before the great white throne judgment? Well, we don't have to guess. He tells us, uh, again, look at verse 12 again. And the dead were judged according to their works. And so if you ever heard anyone say, hey, I, I don't, listen, uh, I don't want to be saved. I don't want to be around church. I'm not interested in Christianity. That one day I, I'm going to stand before God. And I think that God should evaluate me based upon my good works and my good deeds. Because I think that in this moral, eternal scale, my good outweighs my bad. And so I'll stand before God, gaining entrance into heaven. I want to be judged for my own life and works. Well, here's the good news. If you're thinking that this morning, or you know someone that thinks that, the good news, according to this verse, is this. That's exactly what's going to happen. That's exactly what is going to happen. What's he say the base of judgment is? Two times in these verses, they were judged, what? According to their works. And so for anyone who says, that's all I want is a fair trial. That, that's all I want is to stand before God on my own merit. Listen, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Now, here's the bad news, because the verdict has already been decided. Look at verse 14 and 15. Verse 14, the death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life, so those who are judged by their works, not in the book of life, were cast into the lake of fire. And so the verdict's already been decided, and it's condemned. And you say, well, that sounds so heavy and so final. That's exactly what it's meant to be. It's meant to carry the full weight of its connotation. So we talk about vertical judgment from God. Uh, Believers will be evaluated at the great white throne, or I'm sorry, at the judgment seat of Christ, also known as the Bema seat. That's a time of eternal rewards. And unbelievers will stand before God at the great white throne judgment, judged based upon their works. And the verdict has already been declared condemned. That's exactly what the Bible teaches regarding vertical judgment. 
And so here's the second question I want to walk through this morning is what does the Bible teach regarding horizontal judgment? Now this is where confusion sets in, right? Like, like most people, they don't have a problem with the idea of vertical judgment. He's God. He, he can do that. He's a perfect judge. He's a righteous judge. He knows everything. He sees everything. He discerns hearts. He's holy. I get all of that. Even though no one thinks they're deserving of hell, we still don't wrestle as much with the idea of vertical judgment from God. But here's where things get um, slippery. What, what does the Bible teach regarding horizontal judgment. And so uh, here's two simple answers that I want to walk through uh, with you this morning. This will be in Matthew chapter 7. So the first answer I would give is this. Uh, Sometimes it's wrong to judge. Is that helpful? Does that answer every question you have? Like, oh, it's so clear now. Sometimes it's helpful to judge. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you eight occasions quickly uh, where it is wise and right to judge horizontally. And if you're like, I can't ever keep up with you, um, how in the world am I going to write these down? Uh, you can email us. We'll send you the whole transcript of the message if you want to do that as well. So, so I'm just going to walk through these and give you the highlights for the sake of time. Eight instances where uh, it, it is wrong to judge. All right. So number one, you cannot judge unbelievers. Uh, for, for the life of me, I've never understood this. When Christians get mad at non-Christians for not holding Christian values. And that happens all the time. You know how I know that happens? Well, because you've been a pastor, because you're so wise, because your hair is beautiful, right? Like, how, how did, here's how I know, because I've been on Facebook. And anytime Christians are railing against the culture, you know what they're doing? They're getting mad at people who don't know Christ for not holding Christian values. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does that even make sense, yes or no? That was pathetic. Does that make sense? Yes or no? All right, then listen. Stop doing it. Here's what I'm going to do from now on. I'm going to get on your page and comment every time I see that and go, stop doing that. Put a link to the sermon, all right? Hey, you can either be burdened for people who don't know Christ or you can be angry at people who don't know Christ. You can't do both. I promise you, being burdened is the better option according to Scripture. And so, but you cannot judge unbelievers. Where I get that from in the scriptures, well, here's what the Bible says. Uh, When I wrote to you before, uh, this out of Corinthians, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. He's writing to Christians. Listen to what he says, verse 10. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheat people, worship idols. You should have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant you're not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. So if there's ever a time to wash your hands and say, I'm not, I'm not, I'm an excommunicate, I'm not even fellowshipping, it's never an unsaved person, it's with saved people. That's what he's saying here. And then he goes on um, in verse 12, th- th- you, like, this is so clear. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. In verse 13, here's, you can resign from being the world's judge because verse 13 says this, God will judge those on the outside. So listen, you, if, if your job is to judge the world, you can go ahead and resign. God's already filled that role, and I promise you he's better than you are at it, all right? And so you cannot judge unbelievers. Quit getting mad at people in culture for not doing Christian things. 
who don't know Christ. It's ridiculous. Stop it, all right? I had to get that out. All right. Uh, when else, secondly, you cannot judge another person's true salvation. The Bible says this in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, that man looks upon the outside, but God looks upon the heart. And yes, we're fruit inspectors. We, I, I, I get all of that. But here's the simple reality. I don't know if a single person's converted other than me. I don't know if the people in my house are converted other than me. And I have good reason to believe that sometimes, all right? And if you're like, I don't think that, then you don't have kids. I just want to say that openly, all right? But I, I don't know anyone's heart or anyone's uh, conversion or walk with the Lord. One of the great evangelists, I can't remember if it was Moody or Spurgeon, said this. He said, here's the reality. When we get to eternity, what we're going to find is this, that God had some the church didn't, and the church had some God didn't. And so the reality is, I don't know the true salvation or conversion of anyone else's heart because God alone can see the heart. Third thing, you cannot judge another person's motives. You don't even know your own heart's motives is what the Bible says. How in the world are you going to discern the motives of someone else's heart? Now, over time, actions reveal heart affections, but, but that's hard to do, and that's over time. But here's a verse we use all the time. It's important to understand, Jeremiah 79. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? What it's saying is there, you don't even know the motives of your heart. You're deceived by that. How in the world are you going to discern the motives of someone else's heart? And so you can't judge another person's motives. Number four, you, you cannot judge others on your extra biblical standards. That's exactly what's happening uh, in this passage. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. Uh, for what, what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank in your own eye? <laughs> I love that imagery there. You're walking around with a beam sticking out of your eye, and you're worried someone's got a speck of dust. You're like, hey, you know you got some dust in your eye? You're like, bro, you got a two-by-four coming out of your head. Are you serious, right? Verse 5, hypocrite. Great word, amen. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. What, what he's describing here, this Pharisee, is, hey, listen, this extra biblical stuff that you're trying to hold people to, you can't do it. Your heart is wicked. You've got a beam in your eye, and you're worried about whether or not someone pulls an animal out of a ditch on the Sabbath. There's a speck in their eye. That's the whole thesis of the book of Galatians. It's what being uh, dealt with in Colossians when they were judging believers because some observed the feast days, some didn't observe the feast days. They were judging them on extra-biblical standards. The whole issue at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, there was this big debate there on extra-biblical standards. So over and over again, Scripture corrects this behavior. And so what happens is this. Is in, there are some things where I come up with an extra-biblical set of rules, expectations, preferences, and there's nothing wrong with that because all of us have those things. But when it turns wrong is this. When I take my list and I give it to you and I try to judge you and hold you accountable for that, that's exactly what legalism is at its core. And so that's what he's saying here. He says you can't judge others on extra-biblical standards. I had a person say one time, I just think people wearing shorts uh, to church is immoral. I'm like, what? Where's that at in the Bible? Some of you are in shorts right now, you're like, oh, I didn't realize that, right? <laughs> like, we need to have a dress code. That's what they said. 
And I said, listen, I have one when it comes to clothes. I have a consistent position in 18 years of ministry. When it comes to clothes in church, here's my consistent position. I'm for them. Amen? I don't think you should come to church without clothes on. I just, anyway. All right. So number five, uh, you should not pass judgment quickly. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13, he that answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame unto him. And so you've not heard what's going on, you've not walked with this person, you've not been up close, you're just kind of afar going, I know what's going on there and I know what they should have done and this is what they did and so I've not heard all the details, but I'm going to go ahead and make a discernment, an evaluation, a judgment based on the limited information I have. Proverbs 18 says that's a fool and shameful to you. And so you shouldn't pass judgment quickly. Number six, uh, you should not pass judgment in an unloving manner. If you're listening, say amen. Please don't say around me, I can't help it, that's just my personality. Because when Christ saves you in the work of sanctification, you know what the work of sanctification does? It sands off the rough edges of your personality. And so this whole, hey, well, you, you know, I'm sorry you can't handle the truth. Listen, that's good for a movie called A Few Good Men. That's not good for the body of Christ, all right? And so the Bible has two rules when it comes to biblical communication according to Ephesians chapter 4. It says, one, speak the truth in love. And so what does he say? Two elements there. One, speak the truth. Two, do it in love. And truth without love is brutality and uh, love without truth is hypocrisy. And so you should not pass judgment in an unloving manner, even if what you're saying is true. Because what it shows is you don't love the other person because you, you don't care how they receive it. You don't care if it unnecessarily offends them by the delivery. What you're saying is, I love being right more than I love you. And so you should not pass judgment in an unloving manner. Number seven, we should not pass judgment based on external appearances. This is so clear. Uh, two passages, James chapter 2. My brothers, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Uh, for there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel. There should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. And here's the paraphrase. You treat the rich guy really well. You treat the poor guy really bad. And so that's judging on appearances. Uh, also another verse to write down, John seven twenty four. Do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. So he's not saying all judgment's wrong. He says some of it's righteous. He says, but when you judge based on external appearances, that's wrong. When I went to get my haircut, I told Tasha my barber was out of state, and I was out of state taking a class. And I went to get my haircut. I walked. I said, hey, you guys do walk-ins? And there was not a single barber in there. There was four or five in there who did not uh, have every square inch of their visual bo body covered in tattoos and some kind of artwork. And I remember thinking, going in here, you know what? This is a hipster place. Look at me. I'm middle-aged. I got four kids. I'm not a hipster. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to judge. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I could walk out of here with a faux hawk. I mean, I'm not going to judge, right? <laughs> But apparently, that was righteous judgment. I don't, all right. Number eight, we are not to judge the weaker brother in gray areas. And there's so much confusion about this. Let me tell you the idea when the Bible talks about the weaker brother, stronger brother. Uh, let me tell you what the weaker brother is not, despite the connotation of when we hear the word weaker. The weaker brother is not the person in a gray area who is less spiritual. 
It's the person in a gray area who says the Bible's not super clear about this and I don't feel freedom to exercise my Christian liberty in this area. So let me just give you a real life example. It's a real one uh, walkthrough. So when it comes to use of alcohol, now the Bible is clear, drunkenness is a sin. I do not think you can search the scripture with integrity and say have a drink is sinful. Now, I know some of you don't like that. Some of you are like, woo, praise God he said that, right? I'm just telling you integrity with the scripture. I don't think you'd come to that conclusion. I can argue that's not wise. I can, like, I can argue all kinds of ways about it. So here's the deal. When it comes to alcohol, I totally abstain, right? Tasha drinks like a fish. I just want to say that, but I, we got four kids, don't judge us, all right? <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> I just want to say openly, I love you. I just want to say that. <laughs> I just want to tell you that. Uh, so when it comes to alcohol, uh, that issue of, of Christian liberty, um, listen, uh, in that, because I don't exercise my Christian liberty, even though I think there's freedom to do that, uh, in that scenario, I would be the weaker brother. All right, and so what, what does he say here? Uh, listen to what the Bible says um, in Romans chapter 14, because uh, here's the deal. If you can't do something in faith by your spirit-informed conscience, then it may not be sin for someone else who can't exercise liberty, but if you can't do it in faith, it is sin to you, is what the Bible says. So for me to have a, a drink, it would be sin to me, but it may not be sin for you. All right? So listen to this, Romans chapter 14. Receive one who is weak in the faith. Again, that's not spiritually mature, it's the weaker brother, all right? But, uh, but not to disputes over doubtful things. He's like, don't, don't argue about those gray areas. For one believes he may eat all things, this is meat being offered to idols, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. The weaker brother said, I can't eat that meat that's been offered to idols in faith. So he could exercise his Christian liberty. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let him who does not eat judge him who eats. And so you know what it says? If someone says, hey, uh, under the banner of Christian liberty, I choose to abstain from alcohol, don't judge them. And for those of you who abstain like me, don't judge someone else who exercises their Christian liberty. But for all of us, if you do something that violates your own spirit-informed conscience, then it is, in fact, sin to you. Right? So we're not to judge the weaker brother in gray areas, whether it's alcohol, dress codes, they go to movies, they go here, they go there, all that stuff, those kind of things. So, so sometimes it is wrong to judge. I gave you eight examples. You could come up with more, certainly uh, for the sake of time. We can't. So here's the second answer I'll give you. Sometimes it is right to judge. And so if you're here and you're like, uh, like no judgment, any circumstances, only from God, only God can judge me. Like I've heard people say, I'm like, thank you, Tupac, right? Like I've heard like, like this whole, but, no, but other than that, no one else. Like, listen, I'm just telling you, you're wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. I'm sorry. Like if you're, if you're like, I think this should be a judgment-free zone, then, then, then listen, you need to study the scriptures. Sometimes it is right to judge. And I want to, again, reframe the word. And so judging, not in the sense of condemnation. Listen, you may want to. You can't condemn anyone. You don't have the spiritual authority to condemn anyone else. So judging rightly in the sense of evaluating, discerning, holding accountable, making judgment calls, that is wise and biblically appropriate. And so the command is judge not. It is not think not. And so there are times where we have to make discernment. So the 
no judgment at all cost mentality. I know it's popular. Uh, it's an invitation to live foolishly, and it's the absolute lack of accountability that, all, quite frankly, is missing in many of our churches. And so what are the occasions when it's appropriate to discern and evaluate and make a judgment call? I'm just going to list three again. This is not an exhaustive list, but I think it's a biblically accurate list. So three, three times it's right to judge. Number one, when someone is openly engaged in unrepentant sin. Uh, Listen, as believers, we're not creating standards of right and wrong. That's already been done by our Father. But it is our duty to evaluate uh, the rightness or wrongness of things based on what God's already declared. Uh, In that case, we're not judging. We're just simply pointing to a judgment that's already been made by the one who's qualified to make it. Listen to these verses, 2 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. You know what he means by test things? He's saying, be discerning, evaluate it. That's exactly what he's describing. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 5, verses 12 through 23. uh, Paul judges a man guilty of fornication with his father's wife. And uh, he condemns the man and his actions. And then he calls on the church to do the same thing. Listen, apart from we should, we should never judge anyone, what's he saying in that passage? You know, you should never judge unbelievers because God will do that at the great white throne, but you should judge those within the church. You should not keep company with those, he says in that passage, who are sexually immoral. For anyone, he says, who calls himself a sister or a brother and who's involved in open, unrepentant sin, he says, you, the church, have a responsibility to judge that outward, unrepentant, open action and remove them from the church if they don't repent. That's exactly what church discipline is. It's exactly what's being described in there. Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 through 18. Uh, the first Corinthians 5 is the principle of church discipline. Uh, Matthew 18 is the pattern of church discipline. And so what happens? He says you go to that person and you uh, discern or judge their actions. And if they hear you, you've gained a brother. They repent. But if they don't, you take someone else with you And if they hear you, great. If they repent, the thing's over. But if they still don't repent, then he says, tell it to the church. And let the church pursue them in love with the hopes that they would come to repentance and be restored into right relationships in the church. And so, listen, when someone in the body of Christ is engaged in open, unrepentant sin and the church fails to deal with it, what the church is failing to do is to love that person and to do hard things for their own good. That's exactly. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe repentance is for someone's good and for God's glory, yes or no? Yes. And so the most unloving thing the church can do is to watch people ruin their lives and sit back and go, would you look at that? That's a real shame. Listen, if you love them, run after them. Call them to repentance. Tell other people to run after them in love. And so when someone's openly involved in sin, I'm going to go over a few minutes. If that's okay, say amen. I was going to anyway. I just want to share that, all right? Number two, when someone's engaged in unbiblical teaching, in foundational, fundamental doctrines. First John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 15 down through verse 20. Verse 15 says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And all it says, it looks like a true teacher, but he's wicked. 
You'll know them by their fruits. The men gather thorns, and he goes on that whole thing. You know them by their fruits. And so uh, here's the reality. He's saying, hey, listen, when someone's teaching false teaching that compromises the gospel or the key uh, foundational doctrinal pillars of the faith, you have a right to judge that and expose them for what they are. Now, if you're listening, say amen. This does not mean you're to contentiously contend every uh, finer point of doctrine. Like, well, I, I can't fellowship them because they disagree on the timing of the rapture. Well, we can't even, they're a false teacher. <laughs> they're not. I, I can't fellowship with them because they disagree with me on the age of the earth. I can't fellowship with them because they have a different view on sign gifts than I have. I can't fellowship with them uh, because they don't have the same position as I do when it comes to eternal security. I can't fellowship with them because they disagree on how women can or cannot be used in the context of local church ministry. They're a false teacher. Listen, they're not a false teacher, all right? Uh, What is most likely is you're a jerk, all right? Write that down. But when someone says uh, Christ really isn't the Son of God, expose that. When someone says, hey, Christ didn't physically rise from the dead, the resurrection is what happens in the hearts of people who receive him, expose that. When someone says uh, Jesus was uh, the son of God, but not God himself, expose that, all right? And so thirdly, we should judge, discern, evaluate. When loving holds someone accountable to biblical teaching, he said, well, that's the same thing as number one. It's not. Uh, number one is when someone openly knows they're rejecting the word of God. I've had people tell me, I know what the Bible says, but quite frankly, I don't care. This is a person who's deceived. This is a person uh, who is either blind to their sin or lacks wisdom or they're struggling with that sin. Now, listen to these verses in scripture. Proverbs 27.5, open rebuke is better than unspoken love. Uh, Galatians 6.1, brothers, if a man is overtaken in, in trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Luke 17, 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If you love your brother, listen to this, if you love your brother, you will confront him when he is wrong. If you hate him, you will not. Doesn't get any clearer than that. Number four, you should judge when evaluating how to wisely proceed in a situation. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, what's he say? Don't give what's holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. They'll tramp them under their feet. And so basically what he's saying is that there, there are times where you have to realize that someone's not really interested in the truth that you're gonna, you want to share with them, even if your motive is good, and you've got to be wise or discerning or judge how you should handle and proceed in that situation. All right? So, so what is, what is the process, and then we're almost done. What is the, what is the process? Uh, look at chapter 7, look at verse 3, what does he say? Chapter 7, verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? The word consider in the original language, it means to perceive in a meditative, prolonged way. In other words, he says, before you do that, you, you need to carefully think through that. He says, I'm carefully thinking through that. Uh, what, what am I looking for? A, a couple of things. Uh, number one, uh, how do I know that I'm ready to have that conversation, corrective, rebuke, admonishment, all those words where I'm evaluating someone? And how, how do I know? Uh, th- this is how you know when you're considering that. You'll know you've reached that point when your own sins bother you a lot more than the sins of others. If I'm reading the Bible correctly, then what it should produce in me is a greater concerns for my own sins 
not greater concern for the sins of other people. And if you don't read the Bible that way, you're doing it wrong. All right? And so how do I know I'm ready to have that corrective conversation in love? Because I'm more concerned about my own sin. And so that puts me in a posture of humility. Here's the second thing. How do I know I'm ready to have that conversation? Because you don't want to. You see, when you're motivated by love and you've got to have a conversation that's corrective but needed, it's for their benefit, not for yours, and you're motivated by love, you, you are broken hearted to have that conversation because you know it's going to hurt their feelings. You ever have that friend who's just a little too excited to share something with you corrective? You ever have that person? That's not, that's not what he's, he says, hey, I go to them and, and, and it hurts me to even say this because I love you and it's going to hurt your feelings, but I love you too much to sit back and watch you ruin your life by sinful or unwise decisions. And so when you don't want to have that conversation, that's when you're ready to have that conversation. So here's the challenge, and I'm done. So let's make this commitment today as a church. In a don't-judge-me culture, let's love each other enough to not sit back and watch people destroy their lives without saying something. Well, people are going to think I'm judgmental and Pharisee and legalistic. Listen, what do you want more? Do you want, to, want more of the good of other people or do you want your own name to be lifted up more? And let's also commit to respond with humility when someone shares uncomfortable truth in a humble way and be grateful to God that he places people in our lives who would dare love, enough, love us enough to do and say hard things for our benefit and for his glory. Let's be that kind of church. All right? I invite you to bow your heads this morning if you would. And I just want to ask you a couple questions as you seek to apply the truth that we've taught today. Number one, can you say with integrity that you're a person who's open to correction when needed? Can you say that before the Lord today? Lord, when other people come to me, when I'm deceived by my own heart and share difficult truth in a humble, loving way with me, I'm grateful to God for that. Or are you the person who's incredibly defensive and argumentative? If that describes you, would you just confess that to the Lord and say, Lord, I need your grace to help me grow in this area. I need your grace to help me grow in this area. Even when I think their counsel is off, Lord, help me look for even a nugget of truth. Help me to be teachable. Here's the second question I want to ask you right now, honest before God. Is there a hard conversation you're sitting on because you know it's going to be awkward and you love that person deeply? And you've watched them destroy their lives by unwise and sinful decisions. And you've watched back and you've prayed for them. You've been grieved by it. 
but you've yet to have that extra step and offer them correction, admonishment, looking at the, your own heart first. And you know that you need to have that conversation. But the fear of man is too great. If that describes you today and a conversation or a person comes to mind and you say, hey, just pray for me that God would give me greater love for them than greater fear of them. Would you just, heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand and say, that's me, there's a conversation I'm sitting on. Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, amen. Amen. Anybody else? I just want to pray for you. God, grow our hearts. The Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. And so God, in those situations that many of us said we're sitting on conversations, God, let our love for that person grow to the point that it casts out the fear of man and how they're going to respond. God, help grow us as believers to be a church that offers loving correction and a humble people who receive it. God, grow us to be a church that doesn't get angry at people who don't know Christ, but is broken over them. God, help us to be a church that even in the hard things like this, that at the end of the day, what motivates us is your glory. And we pray all that in Christ's name. Amen. If you're here and you don't know.